Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Chapter 96. The Triworks. Besides her hoisted boats, an American whaler is outwardly distinguished by her triworks. She presents the curious anomaly of the most solid masonry, joining with oak and hemp, in constituting the completed ship. It is as if, from the open field, a brick kiln were transported to her planks. The triworks are planted between the foremast and mainmast, the most roomy part of the deck. The timbers beneath are of a peculiar strength, fitted to sustain the weight of an almost solid mass of brick and mortar, some ten feet by eight square and five in height. The foundation does not penetrate the deck, but the masonry is firmly secured to the surface by ponderous knees of iron, bracing it on all sides and screwing it down to the timbers. On the flanks, it is cased with wood, and at top, completely covered by a large, sloping, battened hatchway. Removing this hatch, we expose the great tripods, two in number, and each of several barrels' capacity. When not in use, they are kept remarkably clean. Sometimes they are polished with soapstone and sand till they shine within like silver punch bowls. During the night watches, some cynical old sailors will crawl into them and coil themselves away there for a nap. While employed in polishing them, one man in each pot side by side, many confidential communications are carried on over the iron lips. It is a place also for profound mathematical meditation. It was in the left-hand tripod of the Pequod, with the soapstone diligently circling round me, that I was first indirectly struck by the remarkable fact that in geometry all bodies gliding along the cycloid, my soapstone, for example, will descend from any point in precisely the same time. Removing the fireboard from the front of the triworks, the bare masonry of that side is exposed, penetrated by the two iron mouths of the furnaces directly underneath the pots. These mouths are fitted with heavy doors of iron, the intense heat of the fire is prevented from communicating itself to the deck by means of a shallow reservoir extending under the entire enclosed surface of the works. By a tunnel inserted at the rear, this reservoir is kept replenished with water as fast as it evaporates. There are no external chimneys. They open direct from the rear wall. And here, let us go back for a moment. It was about nine o'clock at night that the Pequod's triworks were first started on this present voyage. It belonged to Stubb to oversee the business. All ready there? Off hatch then and starter. You cook, fire the works. 
This was an easy thing, for the carpenter had been thrusting his shavings into the furnace throughout the passage. Here be it said that in a whaling voyage, the first fire in the triworks has to be fed for a time with wood. After that, no wood is used, except as a means of quick ignition to the staple fuel. In a word, after being tried out, the crisp, shriveled blubber, now called scraps or fritters, still contains considerable of its unctuous properties. These fritters feed the flames. Like a plethoric burning martyr or a self-consuming misanthrope, once ignited, the whale supplies his own fuel and burns by his own body. Would that he consumed his own smoke, for his smoke is horrible to inhale, and inhale it you must, and not only that, but you must live in it for the time. It has an unspeakable wild Hindu odor about it, such as may lurk in the vicinity of funeral pyres. It smells like the left wing of the Day of Judgment. It is an argument for the pit. By midnight, the works were in full operation. We were clear from the carcass. Sail had been made. The wind was refreshing. The wild ocean darkness was intense. But that darkness was licked up by the fierce flames, which at intervals forked forth from the sooty flues and illuminated every lofty rope in the rigging, as with the famed Greek fire. The burning ship drove on as if remorselessly commissioned to some vengeful deed. So the pitch and sulfur-freighted brigs of the old Hydriote, Canarsis, issuing from their midnight harbors with broad sheets of flame for sails, bore down upon the Turkish frigates and folded them in conflagrations. The hatch removed from the top of the works now afforded a wide hearth in front of them, Standing on this were the tardian shapes of the pagan harpooners, always the whale-ship stokers. With huge pronged poles they pitched hissing masses of blubber into the scalding pots, or stirred up the fires beneath, till the snaky flames darted, curling, out of the doors to catch them by the feet. The smoke rolled away in sullen heaps. To every pitch of the ship there is a pitch of the boiling oil, which seemed all eagerness to leap into their faces. Opposite the mouth of the works, on the further side of the wide wooden hearth, was the windlass. This served for a sea sofa. Here lounged the watch, when not otherwise employed, looking into the red heat of the fire till their eyes felt scorched in their heads. Their tawny features, now all begrimed with smoke and sweat, their matted beards, and the contrasting barbaric brilliancy of their teeth. All these were strangely revealed in the emblazons of the works. As they narrated to each other their unholy adventures, their tales of terror told in words of mirth, as their uncivilized laughter forked upwards out of them, like the flames from the furnace, as to and fro in their front the harpooners widely gesticulated with their huge pronged forks and dippers, as the wind howled on, and the sea leaped, and the ship groaned and dived, and yet steadfastly shot her red hell further and further into the blackness of the sea in the night, and scornfully champed the white bone in her mouth, and viciously spat round her on all sides. Then the rushing Pequod, freighted with savages and laden with fire, and burning a corpse, and plunging into that blackness of darkness, 
seemed the material counterpart of her monomaniac, Commander Soul. So it seemed to me, as I stood at her helm and for long hours silently guided the way of this fireship on the sea, wrapped for that interval in darkness myself, I but the better saw the redness, the madness, the ghastliness of others. The continual sight of the fiend shapes before me, capering half in smoke and half in fire, these at last begat kindred visions in my soul, so soon as I began to yield to that unaccountable drowsiness, whichever would come over me, at a midnight helm. But that night, in particular, a strange and ever since inexplicable thing occurred to me. Starting from a brief standing sleep, I was horribly conscious of something fatally wrong. The jawbone tiller smote my side, which leaned against it. In my ears was a low hum of sails, just beginning to shake in the wind. I thought my eyes were open. I was half conscious of putting my fingers to the lids and mechanically stretching them still further apart. But spite of all this, I could see no compass before me to steer by, though it seemed but a minute since I had been watching the card, by the steady binnacle lamp illuminating it. Nothing seemed before me but a jet gloom, now and then made ghastly by flashes of redness. Uppermost was the impression that whatever swift, rushing thing I stood on was not so much bound to any haven ahead as rushing from all havens astern. A stark, bewildered feeling, as of death, came over me. Convulsively my hands grasped the tiller, but with the crazy conceit that the tiller was, somehow, in some enchanted way, inverted. My God, what is the matter with me, thought I. Lo, in my brief sleep, I had turned myself about, and was fronting the ship's stern, with my back to her prow in the compass. In an instant I faced back, just in time to prevent the vessel from flying up into the wind, and very probably capsizing her. How glad and how grateful the relief from this unnatural hallucination of the night, and the fatal contingency of being brought by the lee. Look not too long in the face of the fire, O man. Never dream with thy hand on the helm. Turn not thy back to the compass. Accept the first hint of the hitching tiller. Believe not the artificial fire, when its redness makes all things look ghastly. Tomorrow, in the natural sun, the skies will be bright. Those who glared like devils in the forking flames, the morn will show, in far other, at least gentler relief, the glorious, golden, glad sun, the only true lamp, all others but liars. Nevertheless, the sun hides not Virginia's dismal swamp, nor Rome's accursed Campania, nor wide Sahara, nor all the millions of miles of deserts and of griefs beneath the moon. The sun hides not the ocean, which is the dark side of this earth, and which is two-thirds of this earth. So, therefore, that mortal man who hath more of joy than sorrow in him, that mortal man cannot be true, not true or undeveloped, with books the same. The truest of all men was the man of sorrows, and the truest of all books is Solomon's, and Eclastices is the fine-hammered steel of woe. All is vanity, all. This willful world hath not got hold of unchristian Solomon's wisdom yet, 
but he who dodges hospitals and jails and walks fast crossing graveyards and would rather talk of operas than hell, calls Cowper, Young, Pascal, Rousseau, poor devils, all of sick men, and throughout a carefree lifetime swears by Rabelais, as passing wise and therefore jolly, not that man is fitted to sit down on tombstones and break the green damp mold with unfathomably wondrous Solomon. But even Solomon, he says, the man that wandereth out of the way of understanding shall remain, i.e., even while living, in the congregation of the dead. Give not thyself up, then, to fire, lest it invert thee, deaden thee, as for the time it did me. There is a wisdom that is woe, but there is a woe that is madness. And there is a Catskill eagle in some souls that can alike dive down into the blackest gorges, and soar out of them again, and become invisible in the sunny spaces. And even if he forever flies within the gorge, that gorge is in the mountains, so that even in his lowest swoop the mountain eagle is still higher than other birds upon the plain, even though they soar. Chapter 97 The Lamp Had you descended from the Pequod's triworks to the Pequod's foxhole, where the off-duty watch were sleeping, for one single moment you would have almost thought you were standing in some illuminated shrine of canonized kings and counselors. There they lay in their triangular oaken vaults, each mariner a chiseled muteness, a score of lamps flashing upon his hooded eyes. In merchantmen, oil for the sailor is more scarce than the milk of queens. To dress in the dark, and eat in the dark, and stumble in darkness to his pallet, this is his usual lot. But the whaleman, as he seeks the food of light, so he lives in light. He makes his berth in Aladdin's lamp, and lays him down in it, so that in the pitchiest night the ship's black hull still houses an illumination. See with what entire freedom the whaleman takes his handful of lamps, often but old bottles and vials, though, to the copper cooler at the triworks and replenishes them there, as mugs of ale at a vat. He burns, too, the purest of oil, in its unmanufactured state, a fluid unknown to solar, lunar, or astral contrivances ashore. It is as sweet as early grass butter in April, He goes and hunts for his oil so as to be sure of its freshness and genuineness, even as the traveler on the prairie hunts up his own supper of game. Chapter 98 Stowing Down and Clearing Up Already has it been related how the great Leviathan is afar off descried from the masthead, how he is chased over the watery moors and slaughtered in the valleys of the deep, how he is then towed alongside and beheaded, and how, on the principle which entitled the headsman of old to the garments in which the beheaded was killed, his great padded surtout becomes the property of his executioner, how in due time he is condemned to the pots and like Shadrach, Messick, and Abednego, his spermaceti, oil, and bone pass unscathed through the fire, but now it remains to conclude the last chapter of this part of the description by rehearsing, singing, if I may, the romantic proceeding of decanting off his oil into the casks and striking them down into the hold, where once again Leviathan returns to his native profundities 
sliding along beneath the surface as before, but alas, never more to rise and blow. While still warm, the oil-like hot punch is received into the six-barrel casks, and while, perhaps, the ship is pitching and rolling this way and that in the midnight sea, the enormous casks are slewed round and headed over, end for end, and sometimes, perilously, scoot across the slippery deck, like so many landslides, till at last manhandled and stayed in their course. And all round the hoops, rap-rap, go as many hammers as can play upon them. For now, ex officio, every sailor is a cooper. At length, when the last pine is casked and all is cool, then the great hatchways are unsealed, the bowels of the ship are thrown open, and down go the casks to their final rest in the sea. This done, the hatches are replaced and hermetically closed like a closet walled up. In the sperm fishery, this is perhaps one of the most remarkable incidents in all the business of whaling. One day the planks stream with freshets of blood and oil. On the sacred quarterdeck, enormous masses of the whale's head are profanely piled. Great rusty casks lie about, as in a brewery yard. The smoke from the triworks has besooted all the bulwarks. The mariners go about suffused with unctuousness. The entire ship seems great Leviathan himself, while on all hands the din is deafening. But a day or two after, you look about you and prick your ears in the selfsame ship, and were it not for the telltale boats and triworks, you would all but swear you trod some silent merchant vessel with a most scrupulously neat commander. The unmanufactured sperm oil possesses a singularly cleansing virtue. This is the reason why the decks never look so white as just after what they call an affair of oil. Besides, from the ashes of the burned scraps of the whale, a potent lie is readily made, and whenever any adhesiveness from the back of the whale remains clinging to the side, that lie quickly exterminates it. Hands go diligently along the bulwarks, and with buckets of water and rags restore them to their full tidiness. The soot is brushed away from the lower rigging. All the numerous implements which have been in use are likewise faithfully cleansed and put away. The great hatch is scrubbed and placed upon the triworks, completely hiding the pots. Every cask is out of sight. All tackles are coiled in unseen nooks. And when, by the combined and simultaneous industry of almost the entire ship's company, the whole of this conscientious duty is at last concluded. Then the crew themselves proceed to their own ablutions, shift themselves from top to toe, and finally issue to the immaculate deck, fresh and all aglow, as bridegrooms new leaped from out the daintiest holland. Now, with elated step, they pace the planks in twos and threes, and humorously discourse of parlors, sofas, carpets, and fine cambrics, Propose to mat the deck, think of having hanging to the top, object not to taking tea by moonlight on the piazza of the forecastle. To hint to such must mariners of oil and bone and blubber were little short of audacity. They know not the thing you distantly allude to. Away and bring us napkins. But mark, aloft there at the three mastheads, 
stand three men intent on spying out more whales, which, if caught, infallibly, will again soil the old oaken furniture, and drop at least one small grease spot somewhere. Yes, and many is the time, when after the severest uninterrupted labors, which know no night, continuing straight through for ninety-six hours, when from the boat, where they have swelled their wrists with all-day rowing on the line, they only step to the deck to carry vast chains, and heave the heavy windlass, and cut and slash, yea, and in their very sweatings to be smoked and burned anew by the combined fires of the equatorial sun and the equatorial triworks. When on the heel of all this, they have finally bestirred themselves to cleanse the ship and make a spotless dairy-room of it. Many is the time the poor fellows, just buttoning the necks of their clean frocks, are startled by the cry of, There she blows! And away they fly to fight another whale, and go through the whole weary thing again. Oh, my friends, but this is man-killing. Yet this is life. For hardly have we mortals by long toilings extracted from this world's vast bulk its small but valuable sperm, and then with weary patience cleansed ourselves from its defilements, and learned to live here in clean tabernacles of the soul. Hardly is this done when, there she blows, the ghost is spouted up, and away we sail to fight some other world, and go through young life's old routine again. Oh, the metempsychosis! Oh, Pythagoras, that in bright Greece two thousand years ago did die, so good, so wise, so mild. I sailed with thee along the Peruvian coast last voyage, and foolish as I am, taught thee, a green simple boy, how to splice a rope. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.